what you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence itself. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike Podcast episode number 28. Today I have a fantastic guest to share with you. Her name is Lani and she runs Greener Postures. She is an expert in all things preserving in the old ways of taking care of ourselves on a homestead and of preserving food for harder times. So this is a great conversation. I'm going to keep the intro short. If you would like to check out Lani's work, I'll put the links in the description as always. In part one, we find out a little bit more about Lani, about how she ended up becoming a homesteader. And she tells us what that transition was like for her and her family and what the benefits have been, because that's what it's all about. It's about increasing our self-reliancy, but also improving our health improving our relationships and going back to a more natural way of living and that is what Lani is all about and of course that's what I'm all about as well. Now in part two which I title the Great Depression 2.0 Survival Guide, me and Lani talk about how we could prepare for the potential for some really difficult times ahead and I wanted to get Lani's take on this. I wanted to find out her views on the potential to go towards a new Great Depression and how she is preparing for that at home on her homestead with her family and to give listeners some really actionable tips. So I'm going to leave it there for the introduction. Thank you so much for joining us. Members, please log in at parallelmike.com to listen to the full episode. If you are not a member yet, please consider coming over and joining us. It would be fantastic to have you as part of our community and we do have a homesteading thread on the forum. A number of members have started to populate those threads. They've been sharing photos of their own homesteads. I put some on just the other day of some giant pumpkins that I just harvest. So please check that out also. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're all well, healthy and reasonably happy. And I will see you all, of course, in the next one. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast. We're here with Lani of Green Up Postures. Lani, we was put in touch by a mutual friend, which was Monica Perez, who I am actually speaking to later on today, uh, or should I say late at night for me, it's going to be evening for her. Uh, and, you know, I, I thought your content was excellent, Lani, uh, and I was so excited to have this conversation. I think this is the perfect time for it too, going into the winter, uh, which could be a tough winter, we don't know. Uh, so before we get into anything, Lani, could you just tell listeners a little bit more about yourself and the kind of work that you're doing? Sure. Yeah, I'm Lani of Greener Postures. Um, Greener Postures is the name that my husband, Chud, and I have given our homestead and all of the projects that we do that are geared toward the freedom community, both online and in person. And that's first kind of started with Agora's um, free open markets here on our homestead in 2021 when 
people still weren't really getting together and um, has grown to what I am making online. Um, my YouTube channel is called Preserving Today, and I've now finally finished my new website, preservingtoday.com, which is where I can share information about the things that I'm doing for real in my home. So food preservation is mainly what I focus on. Obviously, um, that is my very favorite would be fermentation, but also things like canning and cooking and using your freezer to preserve things, all of that. So um, homesteading, homemaking, home birth, any of the things that start with home are my favorite topics to talk about. And that's what you can also hear me uh, talking about on my podcast, uh, Greener Postures Podcast. Yeah, and I was listening to some of your podcasts today, Lani, and I thought it was excellent. It was kind of like the perfect... Uh, you know, on the spectrum of kind of preppers and homesteaders and there's kind of, you know, there's some people that are very much towards the world's going to end. We need to just get make a bunker. And then there's other people who are proper homesteaders. You're kind of right in the perfect sweet spot, I think, because you understand what's going on in the world. You understand the threats that are happening, but you're not living in a place of fear. You're like, no, we can fix this. We've done this before. People have lived through hard times. And uh, I think as we get towards part two, I'd really love to talk to you about those harder times in the past and maybe get your views on how we could survive a future hard time like the Great Depression. But maybe yeah. to begin with, Lani, we could just find out a little bit more about your own journey towards homesteading, preserving. Is this something that you grew up doing, Lani, or is it something that you found later in life? Yeah, it's absolutely not something I grew up doing. <laughs> um, I grew up in a, you know, a small-ish city, but a college town. And right in kind of the middle of everything. My backyard was the interstate state five, which is that runs from Canada to Mexico. And we're pretty close to the Canadian border in Northwest Washington and freeway, busy road in the front. My parents didn't have a garden. They didn't cook much from scratch. Although my mother is Italian, so she can cook certain things very well with a lot of care. Um, my father hunted and fished. And so I did have some experience in the wilderness, camping, foraging, you know, mushrooms, that kind of stuff. And I really enjoyed those times as a kid. It wasn't until after we got, I got older and I met my husband who is Chud, who might, people might know him because I also have a podcast called the world as it is today with my husband. And then he's also has his own podcast and has been on Deborah gets red pilt. So people might know him as well. Um, we came together and then had our first child in 2023. 2013. And he was a year and a half old when he had an anaphylactic response to peanuts after his first exposure to peanuts, which was a really big deal. Um, swelling, projectile vomiting, hives, uh, couldn't breathe. His Even his cartilage on his ears were swelling so you couldn't see the hole in his ear, like so extreme. And I kind of didn't realize that peanuts could be that bad, even though you kind of hear about it. And I really didn't want to believe that we would have a son that would have allergies. And it led me to, obviously, the doctors to tell me why this might happen. And the doctors had no curiosity about why it happens. They just told me to avoid the top eight allergens, wait for a test, and to take this EpiPen. There was no curiosity of why it would happen. There was no um, curiosity of how we could probably improve this. And that's when I started doing my own research and really dug into realizing we didn't know what was in our food. I, I got dropped off not being able to buy any packaged food, restaurant food, deli food. None of that was okay for my son any longer. Everything had possible exposure and we had to be really careful. And that put me in the kitchen. And I kind of thought I knew how to cook from scratch at that point. And I quickly realized I wasn't cooking from scratch. I was doing the semi-homemade thing from you know assembling ingredients that I bought pre-packaged, pre-made from the grocery store. 
So with that led me to probiotics and learning there was some research being done in Australia at the time that was linking probiotics to um, improvement with gut health um, and improvement in food allergies in children. And they were giving kids basically um, small exposure to peanut protein by way of a skin patch. And the kids that were getting the low exposure protein at the same time as getting probiotics were having great results of no longer having anaphylactic response when they were exposed to peanuts. And so I went to the store, our local co-op store to get um, probiotics. And I found they were $30 a bottle and that was going to last us about two weeks. And we were really low income. That was not a possibility. So again, back online to do some more research. And I found oh, probiotics are something that are naturally occurring in fermented foods. Okay, what's fermented food? Okay, sauerkraut, I know that. Let's make sauerkraut. So that's where the journey really started, was starting to try to heal my son, who I can say now at 10 years old, has almost none of the allergies, still the peanuts, but eggs, milk, all the other things we had to avoid, even several nuts he's able to eat. And he's much healthier than he was at that time. Wow, that's that's awesome. That's such a cool story that you figured it out. And um, and how did it kind of morph then, Lana? You started out with your son, but how did it become this? I mean, I guess it's a big passion for you. This is what you're doing now full time. You're teaching other people. So mm-hmm. how how was that trajectory? What At what point did it start to become something that you really cared about for yourself and you wanted to learn more about in terms of like as an educator for other people? So I really started to see the benefit of the fermented foods in not only my son, but in my husband and myself, right? And then I got, you know, to the point where I was, I wanted to start a garden just out of curiosity. We had a little space. We started a four by four square foot garden. We were living in this 1970s mobile home with a tiny yard. And I was kind of watching how things were growing. And I I remember Chad and I having this this conversation. You know, one of us said, I wish we were rich enough to save money. And it sounded funny. And that's why I remember (laughs) it is because I thought if we had more space and we had the resources like a second freezer and we had enough money, we could buy things in bulk, then we could get them for cheaper and we could preserve them. And I, I remember that just made functional sense as this new you know, homemaker, even after I have gone back to work full time in an auto body shop for most of our marriage, um, I've always thought of myself, you know, as a homemaker and Chad does too. And so that kind of morphed into this idea of, I didn't even know prepping to me was people storing ammunition and um, freeze dried buckets of food and like canned chili under their bed in an apartment. And so I wasn't a prepper. I was just being, um, I was being frugal and, and smart and planning ahead. Right. And especially when you get to needing to cook every single meal from scratch, having the ingredients you need on hand is smart. And if you want to buy good quality ingredients as this developed, you know, looking towards organic or finding things locally from farmers, buying things in bulk and storing them makes financial sense. So that really was moving me in that direction but the fermented food was so exciting to me because it's like this delayed gratification you put energy into something that's very simple cabbage salt two things that's it cabbage and salt you put some energy and some some you know understanding into it you pack it and set it away and about 30 days later you have this magical amazing sauerkraut that's when you've made it yourself or had it fresh, real lacto-fermented, wild-fermented sauerkraut. It's like nothing else. So there was really ignited this spark in me that what happened to us where we, at one, we're scared of eating food that was left on the counter overnight, but yet I leave this on the counter for 30 days and it becomes this magical, healing, nutrient-dense food. And then when I learned that sauerkraut um, has more vitamin C than cabbage does, 
I was like, there's something that's happening during this process that's really beneficial to humans and to life. And it's built in there from God. It's, it's, it's this natural wild bacteria that's present on these vegetables. I didn't have to add anything or do anything. I just had to set up the correct environment to let these things flourish. And so I became extremely passionate about fermentation and that led to how do I ferment all the things? So mustard, ketchup, how did I, how do I make a relish that's fermented? How can I make salsa that's fermented? Well, I did. And it's, I have salsa in my refrigerator upstairs that I made before we moved to this homestead that's five years old. And so it's like, I became this kind of contest, like how can I preserve things for longer periods of time, increasing the new nutrient value to it and um, saving money, all of it. It's just kind of became this like fun challenge and, and cooking sourdough, all of the other things I do too, kind of added to that. So in 2019, we were able to move to this homestead, which has actually been in Chud's family for over a hundred years. So there's a lot of history here. His, uh, my son's great, great grandpa built the house from wood that they actually logged from the property. And there's um, all this opportunity here we grew raising chickens and eventually meat birds. We have an orchard. We have lots of berries to pick and a huge garden now. So it's like kind of just been building on itself. And as you look at the world and you start to question what we're being fed and we're being told, and you see um, that maybe the systems that are in place are not there to benefit us. They're there to benefit the system. And you realize that to have greater freedom, you need to take responsibility for what you're doing and take back the responsibility from the system and do things yourself. And then you take back your freedom. And when that really clicked for me, it was like, yeah, let me spend my time on my home and on the things that we consume, not going out to work for somebody else to earn money and pay taxes and buy things that we consume that would be of lesser quality and lesser benefit to us. Beautiful answer. We went through the exact same process, Lani, and it's crazy, isn't it? When you awaken to that, that this is how people used to live. It wasn't about going out and earning a ton of money. It was about providing for yourself. And that was where most of your time and energy went. And you maybe mm -hmm. produced enough surplus so you could sell a little bit, or maybe, you know, the man might have gone out and done a bit of work to bring some money in for the additional stuff. But really, it was like making your home was the life. That was where everything happened. And one of the things that I love about your podcast is in the intro, you actually say that homes used to be more than just a place where we sleep and watch TV. There used mm -hmm. to be places where we got married, where we had birth, where we often died as well we grew oh, our we funerals in the parlor yes everything yeah. you know then for you to say that you've moved back to this homestead that actually has all of that history imbued within it I think that's really beautiful so can you tell me a little bit more about that Lani about just what your perception is when you say that we used to live this way on homesteads and that we used to have these houses where all of this activity was happening like our whole histories were kind of locked into those houses what happened like what changed how do you how do you frame that and do you feel like you oh. was cheated? Well, you know, once you figured this out, do you feel like the kind of cheated yes. and took us to something yes. else? Yeah, there were people um, putting things in place that would make us less dependent on ourselves and more dependent on things that would benefit others. And uh, it can and continues to perpetuate itself. But you can look back and say, maybe it was coal burning stoves <laughs> that started it all. You can go farther back and say, maybe it was farming that started it all. Maybe we should be just hunting and gathering. Um, but really like when you think of people having to move outside of the home to make an income, to have the, what they needed, whether that's taxes or heat, or like we do now electricity, um, you can't make those things on your own. So it's kind of like the system has been set up to, to take the things, 
you know, we're not meeting our own basic needs anymore. We're earning money so that the money can buy us the things to meet our basic needs. And the farther we're removed from that, I think the less in touch we are with our humanity and with nature and the more reliant we are on systems that are not healthy to us and the more we become slaves to those systems the more we easily easily we are controlled by those systems and so i really think it's an interesting like to kind of one at a time is kind of how my wife my life's always worked i thought um somebody mentioned some i can't remember i heard it a long time ago that living rooms were called living rooms because they used to be called parlors and that's where the funerals would be held it would be a nice sitting room in the front of the house where you would host a, a the deceased for people to come and view and say their their piece too and and then before they were buried and i was but now they're called living rooms because they're instead for the living and we have our tv there and we're all and i was like well why don't we take care of our dead you know why don't we do that anymore it removes us from that the grieving we have to go through it removes us from that responsibility of caring for ourselves move back from that and think where do we put our elderly now instead of having them in the home to tell stories to our kids and pick beans with us they go to a nursing home and that's also money we have to earn that money to put them in the nursing home we don't homeschool school our children anymore those kids go off to school and then we have to earn more money to be able to support them with the two vehicles to get them to soccer practice and get them to school and get them home so it's like every step you take away from what we used to provide for ourselves, there's more money and more taxes. So you can go back farther and you know, think of like the feminist revolution and getting women to go back to work and kind of tricking us, which I was tricked for so long, thinking that the most valuable and noble thing that I could do is go and be a boss. Like I was a production manager at an auto body shop for a lot of years. And it was that was, I was just as passionate about as I am with this, but I always felt like there wasn't, it wasn't as fulfilling. Whereas now I feel completely fulfilled. I'm so satisfied with the work that I do when I'm tired at the end of the day. And I know I just canned yesterday, 30 can 30 pints of beans. And those are the beans that we're going to eat over the next year. It's like, it's incredibly satisfying work. And to, to take all each step back from death, you know, back, you know, childbirth, my last son we had here in the home and to have him at this in this home that was built by his great great grandpa that he had one of the one of their children was born in this home and uh two of them were born on this property it's just like think how neat that is how rich that is like people don't get to experience that anymore um and monica talks about it a lot like generational wealth um being like maybe property is like the most important physical land is the most important thing that we can pass down to our kids is because you have this place that they've been working on for generations. And while the homestead we moved to wasn't an active homestead, the last generation before my husband and I, um, it was ended up being a rental. So some of the field was, um, was rented out for corn and things like that, but it was monocropped in a way that we wouldn't agree with. And people didn't use the outbuildings here. They just lived in the home. So when we moved in, it was taking this back from the land that was trying to recover the, the outbuildings and the structures. And, and now that we're here, it's like, our passion to want to preserve this and grow it and improve it for our sons. Do you think that that energy resides in the homestead? Uh, oh, Lani, yeah. You know, all of this past and that, that kind of is something that, I don't know, maybe is it like a tangible thing that you can draw on? I feel like it is because I feel better here than I ever have 
anywhere. And I didn't necessarily feel that when I had been on this property before we started to do these things again. But now that I'm working with the land and the property um, and using it the way it was used, you know, every step of the way, we kind of find other little clues of how they lived. Uh, for instance, there's a structure on the property that was the original home here that was a, a small shack sized property that they lived in while they put the well in the barn and then built this house that we're in now. And in that home, it was filled with scrap metal and wood and it had been packed like that since the 1950s. So three years ago now, I think Chad and I took to cleaning all of that scrap out and seeing if we could use that for our chicken house. And we have, and, and it's been our chicken house now for the last three years. Um, but inside there, everything that we pulled out was interesting. Uh, wooden boxes that were dynamite boxes because they had used dynamite to, to blow the stumps out of the field after they had logged it um, to clear the land for pasture. Um, you know, the, the nesting boxes that we use for the chickens today um, this had been uh, a big crop that they did here were potatoes. And for people who don't know, seed potatoes are just regular potatoes and you can split them. And if there's an eye on a section of the potato, you plant that and it grows more potatoes. So they had these boxes built that had a little opening in them and they would pull the potato out of that opening and across a blade so that you could go quickly and cut these potatoes. So we took the blade off and now that little opening is where our chickens go in to lay their eggs. And we have the little, we lift the top and we collect the eggs. So it's like these things that they did themselves here are still here for us to make use of. And to think if there wouldn't have been that gap of uh, 50 years before we started to get back to it, um, we could still be using these th these well-made things that were being used and lived in. You know, it's, um, I don't know, it's really interesting. And yes, there is an energy here that I can't quite uh, put my finger on, but that people have put effort in and have worked here and taken what they needed to survive from this place. It's, it's inspiring. That's really cool. Um, we did something similar, Lani. We moved back to, to Poland, to rural Poland and bought an old farm. And, and it was the same thing. Our house was built about, it's a hundred years ago today. Uh, so it's a German homestead, actually. It would have been Germany back then. But we still find stuff. We dig up stuff all the time in the soil. In fact, we dug up a grenade from World War II. Uh, oh, no, actually, I, I looked online. It wasn't World War II. It was World War One. It was Prussian. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so I was like, it was all rusted and mangled. And I was like, what do I do with this? <laughs> My neighbor, he said that they actually dug up ones. And he dug up a missile. And when he was younger, he said, we threw it on a fire and we, we exploded the missile. <laughs> the, the whole region, he said, the boom was so loud, the whole region shook. And like wow. everyone come running across, like, what the hell's going on, sir? Uh, yeah, See, the so stuff all... you get up to when you don't have a TV on, you know? Like... <laughs> yeah, blowing up World War II mortars. Uh, yeah, so, uh, and you know, that, that history is so beautiful. Like when we speak to our neighbor, his mom still lives here. She's in her 90s now. She spent her entire life here and she can tell us everything about the region. It does have a different feel. Uh, and I think, yeah, like you said, a lot of it's lost. I'm so glad that you managed to to retrieve the homestead before it got sold off permanently as well. And I we guess one too. thing that is difficult is what we found anyways, and you can tell me your thoughts, Lani, is although in my wife's family, she's Polish and everyone here kind of grew up in a rural setting. And because of communism, it kind of extended that period much longer than it did in the West. So whilst in the West, towards maybe the 60s and 70s, people were starting to head to the cities and the suburbs and, and lose these skills, people in Poland kept them for a lot longer. 
because of the artificial extension of this period of poverty. So there was people like my wife was still farming when there was in like the early 1990s. She remembers those periods. And even if you was in a city, you still had to have an allotment or a little garden because you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have survived and there just wasn't enough food. But one of the things that we struggled with and what I wanted to ask you about is the loss of knowledge. Like we're having to seek out older people, particularly grandparents. They've got a ton of knowledge, but there is now a disconnect. Like there's people in the thirties and forties and they don't know how to farm. And that would be us too. Like we had no clue when we got here. Uh, and like you, ours is more of a homestead, but we're doing a lot of the old ways, preserving, pickling, canning. So um, how did you find that, Lani? Did you have any mentor or anyone that you could turn to? Or is this stuff you just had to find books on, go online? Yeah, there was a lot of just needing to try to excavate this from wherever I could get it and and start to do it myself. Because I think there's only so much that you can learn from reading or watching videos. And, and it's actually the act of getting your hands dirty and starting to do the things and learning from your successes or your failures is where you really learn and we did, we used to be able to practice like that as children under our grandmother's feet in the kitchen or under, you know, our grandfather, um, in, um, uh, in the, on the farm. And fortunately, Chud did grow up next door to his grandfather when this was a retired farm by the time he remembers, but his grandpa, you know, for a time still had cows and still had a garden and his grandma still was canning and they would, you know, come together during harvest time to can um, pears or uh, make root beer. And so he has some experience with that and I don't. And by the time we moved here back to the, the, this road, um, the city had sprawled out around it. So we're still outside of city limits, but it, I mean, we're five minutes drive from a Walmart. So it's not rural. And the people around us had become much more modern. Um, there was one woman who still lived across the street that had been there for a long time. And so we would talk, go and talk to her and she passed away this last year in, in her nineties. Um, and then we had one uh, a neighbor on our back part of our lot that had been there since the late eighties, I think. And he's a bit younger than, it, but he had come in and was learning from Chad's grandfather. And so we have him as well to ask questions to, but what I think that, um, more than just tools or property that's passed down, it's this understanding of things like weather patterns and risk or the way to deal with animals in your area, in your environment, because that can be so different. So when you look at to a blog about somebody talking about hoof rot on their animals and you live somewhere that's very dry, you might not have ever have to deal with that. So it, it might not pertain to you. You know, everything is so unique to where you are. Um, there's so many questions I have about the way the weather is controlled and things that I see in the sky. And I just wish I could talk to somebody who was a hundred and had been here their whole life to tell me, what what if I what I was seeing was what they remembered from their childhood. There's things that uh, can be passed down verbally. I think that we I think it's intentional that they're severing families so that people are compartmentalized in their lives and they're not coming together to share this wisdom. And I think that that's something that's really important that we recover while we still can and then pass that down to our own kids. And so that's definitely my quest to learn these old ways of doing things and and share that information. Yeah, it feels like something happened. I think it was the two world wars. Personally, those world wars happened and they managed to create a real big traumatic break between the old world and the new. And very quickly, they took control over everything. All of our basic needs were handed off to corporations. And that's the world that me and you grew up in. And now mm -hmm. there's this whole kind of renaissance of people trying to go back to the land. But like you just said, it's not so easy. It took us, personally, it took us about two years just to really 
start to figure it out. Like, you know, the first year, half of the stuff we planted just didn't even grow. I was like, why? Why isn't it growing? You know, I think like you said, there's so much that's personal to where you are. Like what kind of soil do you have? Ours is very sandy. Somebody else's might have no sand at all. So you need that kind of local knowledge. And yeah, to not have somebody there to kind of guide you. We thought personally, it's very important to start now before the really hard times hit, because I, I think it'd be very hard to get up and running if, say, we do, we are in a Great Depression in a year's time and people think all of a sudden, I need to plant a garden. It's like, no, it's not probably not going to work like that. You're really going to struggle without some some time to develop. Uh, yeah. But before we get too far into all of that, Lanny, maybe we could just start by just laying out what is fermentation and like why is it important? And you've talked about the gut microbiome and probiotics. What is all that about and how does it help our body? Okay, so yeah, a lot of people know fermentation because of the... Um, you know, new information about probiotics and how that gut health, right? Leaky gut, people might've studied that. But what you might not realize is that fermentation is just an ancient form of food preservation. And so these microbes actually help protect the food from rot. And these microbes kind of went out on a battle between the bad microbes that would break things down and return it to soil like you have in your compost pile. And they are microbes that turn um, the environment to be acidic. And in an acidic environment, like with vinegar, the bad microbes cannot grow. So it's in and of itself a, a protection mechanism to make the food so that it won't become poisonous to you, right? Um, a lot of people think leaving food on the counter or whatever you think of botulism or salmonella or you know any other E. coli, other kinds of food poisoning. And... Uh, the best part about fermentation to me is that there's this self-protection in it that it, those those things that you un, undesirable things will not grow on the so it's one of my favorite ones i think for people who are started that are a little bit uh, hesitant because they're afraid of get, making themselves sick you know there's risk to canning canning is an industrial food process that's only been around for uh, since the eight, early 1800s. And when you, you, and only really doing it in our homes since like the late 1800s. Fermentation, however, is, is as long as there is recording human history, there is fermentation. And, and it, it just means that you're taking a vegetable, fresh vegetable. Um, there are invisible microbes on that vegetable that you cannot see. You don't need to add anything. You're submerging it under a liquid, which would be water, usually salt, even though salt actually isn't necessary to the process, but it makes it taste good and makes the texture better. So I definitely recommend salt. Under salt water, and under salt water is where these microbes that we want uh, to flourish do their work. They, um, they survive in an anaerobic environment. They eat the sugars and carbohydrates from the vegetable. And the byproduct of that is um, all these bacterias, yeast, and acetic and lactic acid. And those acids turn the pH to the, the entire food into a pH that's safe for eating and safe for leaving room temperature. And the ferment continues to ferment at room temperature. So if you want to slow it down or stop, you can move it to a refrigerator or a root cellar, which is what people used to do, or even bury it in a crock in the ground. Um, other byproducts of the process are CO2. So if you're trying to make something like a homemade soda, fermentation is a way you can have a, a effervescent bubbly drink without having any of the store-bought garbage. Um, it's, it's just, just the coolest process. And I think there's like, you could totally dork out and, and get, dig into the science side of it, or you could take it for what it is. It's, it's magic. This is, is God's work. This is 
an amazing process that happens before your eyes where you can't see that anything's there and you provide this correct environment and you can watch it bubble. You can hear it and smell it and feel it on your face when you put your face up to the jar. And this process that happens makes this food that's nutrient dense where you, that will last you into a time where you would not have any vegetable to eat. And I, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's really a lot of fun. So if people like making stuff where you have to kind of wait, you know, sourdough is also a fermented food. And I think a lot of people are familiar with that. Yogurt is a fermented food. Cheese is a fermented food. Even things like chocolate and coffee beans are fermented to remove the outside husk. So it's, it's used a, a lot in conventional food making, but then it's often pasteurized after the fact, which kills off any of those beneficial bacteria. So that'll stop the process and makes it easier for them to store things long-term. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I kind of, I can get really excited when I talk about fermentation and go all over. So if you have any specific questions, let me know. When I first met my wife, she like in Poland, it's like in central Europe and Eastern Europe, everything's preserved. Everything's fermented. They love it. They've been, they've never stopped doing it. But back in the UK where I was, it was like completely unheard of. And I, and I was pretty health obsessed for quite a while because I was an athlete. So I was really into my diet, eating organic, you know, fresh fruit and veg. And when she started to tell me about this fermented stuff, I thought it sounded like you're going to kill me. <laughs> like, what's all yeah. this about? She still, she just showed me a box in the fridge and she said, oh, it's the sourdough starter. And I was like, what do you mean? She said, oh, it's the bacteria. And I was like, oh, great. And she said, yeah, it's about 50 years old. And I just couldn't get my head around it. So we've got this sourdough starter that's, you know, apparently goes back 50 odd years. But that terrified me at first because we're brought up in this health and safety culture around food. You know, you have to heat everything perfectly. Bacteria is always seen as a poison. It's not seen as something that can help us. I actually think it's a whole psyop, a lot of it. And don't get me wrong, you can poison yourself. But for example, like we go buy raw milk from our neighbor. She squeezes it into old Pepsi bottles, like just plastic Pepsi bottles. We just get it straight from the cow, bring it home, drink it. We've never had an issue. When it comes to canning in Poland, and this is something I want to get your opinion on like the way that everyone does it here is we literally just use old jars and we do do the boil in a pan method so we'll seal it maybe two or three times if it's meat we'll do it three times but people always ask me about buying special jars this that and the other and i'm like everyone in poland does it this way like literally everyone my wife's never been sick her family i've never been sick so how much do we have to worry about that so it's so interesting to me because like, if you were to say what you just said, like on a canning forum in the US, like people would attack you and they'd be like, your anecdotal <laughs> uh, experience means nothing because the science says that that will cause botulism. And so it's very interesting. And I think when I get worried about something like I did when I initially started fermenting, I was like, I'm going to make my family sick. Like, how do I know this isn't going to make me sick? How do I not know there's like some secret scary microbe that's just like lurking in there waiting to kill me uh, because that's really and I think it is a psyop that's really how they've described food poisoning you can't understand it scientists can understand it therefore you can't do it yourself you have to trust the experts so you have to trust the experts to manufacture your food and make sure it's safe then it's funny when you hear about a recall for something it's always like some conventional food that's making people sick it's never home canned goods that's making people sick so for me I think that understanding foodborne illness and how it could come about it, with the information that science has given us, which I know I also take with a grain of salt because who knows if these studies are even correct. 
So botulism, let's just take botulism because that's the really scary one because that's a neurotoxin that can cause like paralysis and, and death. Um, a different than just an upset stomach for a day, like the can mo most food poisoning that people speak of. Botulism is a spore and it is in our environment, on, on our windowsills, on our skin all the time. We ingest it all the time and it's fine. Uh, but if that botulism spore is given the correct environment, it will grow into the botulism toxin. And if we ingest that, that can make us sick. And again, this is conventional wisdom. So if you know that the spore is fine and the toxin makes you sick, then obviously the question to ask yourself is how do you grow the spore into the toxin? If you don't want to, if you don't want to have botulism, you need to know how to grow it, right? <laughs> so the answer to that is a botulism grows in an anaerobic environment, which again means without oxygen. So in liquid usually, right? Without oxygen at a room temperature. So not too hot or not too cold. And it needs to be a base, it cannot be an acidic environment. So if you were to seal up a jar of meat and leave it on the counter, it could totally make you sick. So how does canning work then? Well, the canning works by getting the temperature of the meat and the jar up to a certain temperature for a certain amount of time. And there's multiple ways to do that for people who don't know. There's usually water bath canning and pressure canning. And in the United States, the recommendation is that water bath canning only happen with, um, with foods that have a pH of 4.6 or less. And so that would be in an acidic environment where botulism, botulism couldn't grow anyway. So it's not as important, right? Uh, the other would be a pressure canner. The pressure canner gets to a higher temperature and you maintain it for a longer period of time, depending on the density of the food. The denser it is, the longer it would take for the heat to penetrate, they say. So you pressure can meat and, and beans, anything that's not in, in a vinegar brine or fruit, the, the lower acidity foods go in the pressure canner. But people have been doing meat in water bath canner for a long, long, long time. Pressure canners are relatively new, you know, after 1900. And they weren't even like really in, in most households until quite a while after that. Um, how, how is this possible? Well, you know, you know what to do. So if the, if the, the method is passed down to you from people who have survived eating this food, then you should say that's safe. I would more agree that that is a better way to determine if something is safe than to, to believe somebody who did some test in a lab. So if you boil that meat under the water for long enough, I, you would kill any spore that would be in there. The funniest part about all of it though, is that botulism toxin cannot survive a high heat. Botulism spores can can um, survive boiling, which is 212 Fahrenheit, right? The spore can survive boiling and that's why they say water bath is bad. You need to do a pressure canner, which gets up to more like 240 to 255. So if you then learn the toxin though, cannot survive boiling, the answer is that jar of meat that you left on your counter to spoil that has can, definitely has botulism toxin. If you bring that to a boil for a few minutes, you can eat it and it won't make you sick. So anyone who's, who's doing the method you were saying is probably heating their food before they eat it, number one. And number two, they know that they need to boil it much longer than they do, um, you know, if they're making uh, vinegar pickles or canning tomatoes. The meat is going to be gone for, you know, going for longer. So there's all this, like, information out there that's never told to us when we take the health and safety test to be able to work at a restaurant or when we hear the news telling us there's a new E. coli outbreak. It's never, ever explained to us. And people just think, 
food that sits out or food that's home canned is not safe and I can get sick and I can't tell unless an expert tells me. And that's totally wrong. There's all these under this other understanding to be found. And like, then you can take that, you know, freedom back of being able to like prepare your own food and not be afraid of it. Yeah, it's really crazy. I mean, I would never even have thought about being poisoned. You know, when I came to Poland and I met my wife's family, they used to send us back on the airplane with jars and jars of it. Well, when you could still take food back, you can't actually take uh-huh. it anymore. But they send us back with jars and jars of things and I just eat it. It was always great. And, you know, I literally just never thought about it. And then it wasn't until people started to ask me about um, canning. Uh, how do you do it, Mike? And I told them and it was like, what? You you don't have special jars? I was like, no, we just we recycle old jars. In fact, some of the jars are probably from the 19, uh, maybe 1990s or 2000s. They were probably I'm not even, better made back then, too. You know, yeah. I'm not even kidding. Like them. the lids on them look pretty damn sketchy. But but, yeah. you know, that's how they do it. And that's how everyone does it. And funnily enough, I just actually looked while you were speaking about botulism cases in Poland. I was like, I wonder if they're higher than everywhere else. And it said 0.04 per 100,000. Uh, and I think they said something like 20 cases a year in a country of 40 million. I don't know if that's high, Lenny, or not, but it's... Um, uh, I, I, yeah, I don't think that doesn't sound high to me. And what did they contract botulism from? Because botulism poisoning can also come from Botox injections. Oh, wow. Botulism poisoning can also come from other ways of them using botch. They use the botulism toxin in products and medications, and you can actually get botulism poisoning from being over injected by your botulism injections <laughs> so if the lady that uh, had the poisoning has really big lips and you'll know maybe it wasn't <laughs> yeah. from the canned foods so it's it's so it's so strange like here um there's never been an instance of fermented food causing botulism poisoning or any kind of food poisoning period no fermented vegetables but there was one case in alaska where people fermented beaver tail and paw and they got bo- uh, botulism from that and so it's like when you're doing something dense like that, even meat, if, if it's not fully penetrating the meat and it's not completely acidic throughout or completely heated, if you're doing canning, then there's still a potential that there could be this thing there lurking. So I think that the comfort comes from understanding and, or at least having someone else who understands that's taught you the ways that have been like personally, you know, them, they can it. So you weren't worried about the canned goods you were being sent home on the airplane until someone asked you to question them. Um, because you know, the people handing them to you love you and they have been eating those same foods for a long time. Um, I think since we are so disconnected from like the being passed down, how to do things, then we look to the experts, which is the news that's always like every couple of years, there's this new uh, salmonella outbreak, listeria outbreak on cantaloupe, um, you know, E. coli on spinach. I remember when I worked at a restaurant because I had this lady just come and yell at me and was waving this piece of green at me saying, this is supposed to be recalled. It's like, that's romaine lettuce, ma'am. That's not spinach. But you know, these people who are scared of stuff like that, but they've never cooked for themselves. And they look, this woman looked really sick. She had one of those hover round things. She was a really big lady. And it's kind of like, where do we put our priority into what our health is? Um, Do we make sure we don't get food poisoning, but we trust going to McDonald's for a burger? Well, you know, the raw milk thing was one that really got me because when I was uh, I was boxing competitively and a guy that I really looked up to, he was in America and he said that raw milk was something that he absolutely just consumed all the time. He said he loved it. So I started to look into it and I realized, of course, as many people do, you can't get it. Like it was illegal in, in Great Britain. You just couldn't find it. And they said, oh, it's because it can cause poisoning. You can end up in mm-hmm. hospital. So I looked up the numbers. And I've got them actually here. Over a 10-year period between 1998 and 2018, there was 228 hospitalizations that were attributed to raw milk. 
228 that they guessed was from raw milk over 10 years. Lanny, that's that's nothing. More people that's go nothing. each year probably from egg consumption from something they bought from a supermarket. So I, I realized it was a psyop. And then I delved into it, as I'm sure you've done. And there's this huge milk lobby, like, you know, like where mm-hmm. tens of billions each year, these big milk companies, then there's the sugar lobby. And there's all these different lobbies that just say, yeah, make that illegal so that we can earn more money. Don't allow farmers yep. to sell to the local community. Uh, and there's a whole whole history of them infiltrating just small time producers and making sure that they can't sell their goods or at least if they do try and sell them they're going to be severely undercut in the market or they're going to have some kind of fear based propaganda around it so so that's what i learned about it Uh, it was about 10 years ago and i spent a long time trying to find somebody who would sell me raw milk in the uk he had to lie, I think, about what you was using it for. So you could buy it, but it's not for human consumption. It's something silly right. like this. Yes. So um, this, the laws in the United States vary state by state. Um, some laws, people will sell what they call pet milk. And it's not that they milked their cat. It's it's <laughs> cow's milk that's supposed to be for your pets. And so by selling it and saying it's pet food, then you are skipping over. And then when that person gets home with it, they do whatever they want to. You don't have control at that point. Fortunately, in Washington, the sale of raw milk is legal, but it's difficult. And because it's difficult and because the the regulation around it is difficult, it's very expensive. Um, you can get conventional homogenized pasteurized milk in the store, not organic, for um, f- about $3 a gallon here. And when you go to the co-op to buy the raw milk that's readily available in a store, which there's only a couple stores that actually carry it, it's $13. So $10 a ga- gallon more for the raw milk. And people are still buying it because if you look into it, you know that there's so many more nutrients in raw milk than there that there is not once it's pasteurized. The pasteurization, for people who don't know, is a certain um, heat and length of time that it's maintained at that heat. And so that is to kill all these beneficial bacteria that we were talking about for fermentation. And with um, pasteurization, you're killing any of the bacteria that is there to naturally protect the food from the bad bacteria growing, which is really fascinating to me. If you're getting milk from healthy cows in a clean milking um, parlor, then you're getting milk that has those bacteria that are not going to rot the milk if you leave it on the counter. Instead, it's going to turn it into something that's called clabber. And clabber can be used as starter culture to make cheeses. Clabber can be used as you would buttermilk. So you would have clabbered milk sitting on your counter that you would add to recipes. And it's just slightly sour and still good. When you seal up a jar, a gallon of pasteurized milk and leave it on your counter, you open that, you know, that's not food that you should be eating. It's disgusting. And that's because the pasteurization doesn't kill everything, but it kills enough of the good bacteria that they can't be there to support that milk and turn it into things like cheese and clabber. That's the awesome thing as well, is that when you go back to making things for yourself, you realize that the life cycle of food is completely different. I mean, what we think it is when we buy it from a supermarket is you buy it and it's fresh and then it goes off and you throw it away if it's gone. And -hmm. when you actually learn how these things work when you're doing it yourself and doing preserving is now there's a life cycle like you can have the milk, then it can turn into kefir, it can turn into soured milk. Or we, I don't know what you, what the word was you just said, Lani, but we have this thing all over here called mashlanka, which is when you are making butter and you've got all of the strained milk afterwards and it turns mm-hmm. into this really tasty sour milk and uh, it's like prized stuff over here like we're always when we uh, whenever we go to buy our raw milk we're always like do you have any uh, mashlanka left <laughs> you know like, everyone's <laughs> yeah, trying to get the mashlanka that- 
that's like a lot like what buttermilk is and you can buy buttermilk in the store and it's not that but you save that it's like whey you save the the what you take you know you take away and it's good for a lot of things so yeah it's like the byproducts of the things are good for us and the different stages that they go through and if you think about cheese is like this food everybody knows and they eat and in the united states the cheese that you can get here it's not it's very processed is not very good. Um, but even then it's good. You have a pizza and it's stretchy. People know cheese, but do you know cheese? The reason cheese exists is to preserve milk because cows don't give milk every day, all year round. They have times they take breaks when they have calves. There's times you have to feed the calf with the milk. So because all foods, even chicken eggs are seasonal foods, we've lost that understanding, there needs to be a way that we preserve these things for long-term. And with every food, if you look into it, there is a natural way to preserve that thing. And it's, it's there built into it by design. It's fascinating to me to realize that cheese making takes rennet and rennet comes from a calf's stomach and cheese making takes natural bacteria that's on raw milk. And what is a calf drink? Raw milk. Cheese making needs to be made inoculated at body temperature. And what is the inside of a calf? It's a body. What's happening in the calf's stomach is they're making cheese to digest their mother's milk. And when you like, it's like one of those moments where your head explodes, then you're like, all of this stuff is there for us just, just naturally. And then why does some system have to come along that does everything the opposite to fight against it, to kill all of these things that are in place, to make it better and safer and healthier for us. If there's any uh, government or corporation telling you they're going to do something that's healthier for you and they're doing, putting something into place to make you healthier, you should be suspicious in the least. Yeah, I think so, especially after the last few years, Lenny. And uh, yeah, and that's it. The whole thing is based on lies with the sickest generations that have ever existed our children are the sickest and most unhealthy and yet these are the people who are the arbiters of health and truth and it's like who trusts these people like it's an absolute <laughs> disgrace what they do to us but there you go that's what's happening but i'm so mm -hmm. glad people like you are bringing back these old skills and they are old time skills and um, how does cooking affect our food lenny well, cooking is um, certain things I feel like need to be cooked to be more digestible. And if you look to the studies of Dr. Weston A. Price and the Weston A. Price Foundation has a lot of good information on this, but things like grains and beans being soaked, soured, or sprouted. So soured meaning fermented, soaked meaning like you soak dry beans overnight and sprouted like, like salad sprouts that you might have. I think that cooking... Um, can also be harmful to certain foods. If you cook something too long or too hard or things that are charred, might not be the healthiest way to consume things. So like for things like, um, most people eat lean meat from the store now because that's what became popular. You get a steak or something, but eating a piece of an animal that also has connective tissue and bone and you're simmering that in water for a very long time, you're extracting all the nutrients and minerals and collagen from that whole structure that you're cooking and it's delicious. Then you have broth, right? Um, that's super nutrient dense and, and excellent. Like there's, there's other things like like root vegetables and stuff that you can throw in there. And I think people have lost that way of cooking um, for themselves. A lot of the ways that cooking is done now is just to kill all the bacteria so that you don't get sick. But really, if you have fresh food or it's been properly cared for, then you don't have that concern. And you can kind of learn to how to and, and unlock the most amount of value for what you have uh, using the whole animal and a variety of vegetables that are available to you. And I don't know, cooking is, is a lot of fun, if, if nothing else. 
Yeah, this is another thing that we don't really use the other parts of the animals. We go out and buy the the cuts of meat, but again, over here it's not quite the same. We we cook everything. You know, the chickens' feet even get cooked. The fish heads get cooked. We have soup out of it. Uh, and again, it, it took some real effort on my part to get over that. You know, when I see a fish head floating in this pan of soup, it's mm -hmm. not. It's, it's just not appetizing to me coming from a traditional Western background. But once yeah. you get over it, you find out that. Not only is it really tasty, but a lot of these things are really healthy as well. And it can actually be the healthiest parts of the animal. It can be things like the the, the brains or the, the cuts that we would consider unhealthy. And the fats too as well, Lani. That's a big one, isn't it, that we've been taught growing up is fats are bad for us when it's actually not the case. Fats are very healthy. And animal fats particularly can be very healthy. So I just want to get your take on fats, Lani. Not just animals, but also oils too. Is this something that you've done much research into in your own yes, life. Yes, yes, I have. So like vegetable oil, like I grew up in a conventional family and there was always like, you know, I was a chubby kid and it was like, you go to Weight Watchers and they teach you about how to eat healthy. And it's like restricting fat is the first thing on the list. And then the healthy fats they recommend were canola oil, um, grapeseed oil, which everyone else calls rapeseed oil because grape seeds are, don't actually give you an oil, but conventional vegetable oil and stuff even just called vegetable oil. And these, these are not foods. The, these were vegetable oils were not food before the like late 1800s. They were used for making um, oils for lamps or machines like lubrication, or they were used for making candles. And so Procter and Gamble got put their heads together. One was a soap maker and one was a candle maker. And they made uh, this, they used cottonseed oil, which was a byproduct of cotton making and was used for lamps and, and lubrication. And they also uh, used this newer process called hydrogenation, which made these oils into a creamy texture that wouldn't melt at room temperature. And they invented Crisco. And they had this great marketing campaign for Crisco at this time without doing any studies on what it would mean for people to start to consume these oils. And they convinced housewives and restaurant owners and big companies that Crisco was healthier than animal fats. It was cleaner than animal fats and it was easier to store. And before you know it, most um, Americans were buying Crisco to have in their pantry, even farmers that previously were rendering their lard and tallow to use for different products, including soap making and candle making, um, were starting to buy Crisco for making their pie crust or for, for making baking cookies. And that became part of our diet. And soon after the liquid oils, as well as the hydrogenated oils like margarine was made out of, um, both forms, the liquid oils used for like vats and frying that used to be used tallow, which is a rendered beef fat. Um, the nutrient profile, if I can even say that about the vegetable oil is completely different, but it's the structure of those polyunsaturated fats. Some people call them PUFAs. Um, those are basically, they're, they have like Swiss cheese, they have holes in their structure that can get air in and oxidize the fats and basically make them rancid quickly. And so you're these, and those things can be like free radicals in the body, like carcinogens, right? Causing uh, effects and inflammation that we don't want to deal with. And they have had a campaign to continuously make sure that looks healthy and the animal fat looks like it's making us sick. So when we started to have 
uh, rampant diabetes and heart disease. It was always blamed on something else. And saturated fat has always been the villain. And the saturated fat doesn't have those holes like Swiss cheese. It's saturated. And that is much more shelf stable. And if you get your animal fat from an animal that's eating their natural diet, it is loaded with vitamin A, D, and K. So it can protect from things like sunburn because it has these nutrients in it that help you take the nutrients from the sun. Whereas like the vegetable oil diets we've been taking, people go, the sun must be getting hotter because all these people get sunburned now that didn't used to. And it's like, maybe it's the diet that we're eating isn't working with our environment as well. So we buy a half a cow from a local farmer, it's grass fed, and I get this big clump of fat from it and it's gnarly looking. I work through it, I chop it up. You put it into a crock pot or a big stock pot with some water or no water. There's, there's also lots of fights online about if you should do wet rendering or not. But the point of it is, is to get that felt fat to melt down and you strand it out and, and it will float to the top and become hard. You can remove the water from it. So the goal is to have no water left, just melted fat, put it into jars, use it for cooking, frying the best French fries you've ever made. Um, and I also make tallow balm, which is the only lotion that any of us use on our skin. I make salves using herbs that are for like diaper rash or for eczema or cuts and scrapes. And then you also can make soap, which is a newer project I've been working on this year, which is uh, making tallow soap as well. And so same goes with um, a, a good healthy hog. We get a half a hog, we get the lard, we render it. And that I use less for body products and just for cooking. And it's really good in pie crust and biscuits and all of that. And then you're getting nutrition from that and not having this, you know, industrial waste, which is vegetable oil. Yeah, it's, it's really sad what they've done to our diet and also to the mass mind where people think that it's unhealthy to eat fats. And, you know, I've got people in my family who have diabetes have high blood pressure, they're very medicated, heavily medicated for those things. And they tell me when I eat the fat, if I'm in their presence, they say, Oh, no, 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 it's really unhealthy. Don't do that. And you know, you kind of go through the same thing every time. It's not unhealthy. And they say, but I read online, I read this. Yeah. And then they'll eat a bar of chocolate in front of you. And then they'll yeah. have sugar. And it's, it's just like, you know, I, I abstain from sugar. But yeah, it's like everything's back to front. Like everything that they tell us is healthy is unhealthy. And everything that's unhealthy is healthy. It's the inversion of health. Oh, and totally I think we that. see that in the in the results that we're seeing in our in our own lives and in the lives of our kids and other people. Mm -hmm. And it's not it's not gotten better. And it's so funny because every few years they'll switch the science on the eggs. They'll they'll come out and say only yeah, the egg, the egg whites, the yolks are bad, right? And then a few years later, actually, yolks are healthy, but just enough, you know, people barely hear that and start to make changes. And then again, it's like actually, yolks are but you know, yolks are bad, and and whites are. The, it's like so ridiculous. And really the answer is, this is like the nutrition you're getting in your yolk depends on how that chicken was treated and how, what it ate. And cholesterol is, it's one that can really bug me because it's, it's got like you, it's gotten my family members. Like people, no, I'm going to take my statin. Cholesterol is really bad. It's going to prevent heart disease to take this pill. Well, it's weird because if you look at the statistics, people are more likely to have a heart attack if they're taking that pill than if they're not, even if they also have high blood pressure and high cholesterol. And so you have to wonder, is that drug helping or is it hurting you? But cholesterol is naturally made by the body. If you don't get cholesterol from your food, your body will make more of it. And if that's the case, then you have to wonder, is it because we're we're supposed to have cholesterol. Our brain is mostly made of fat and cholesterol. So when they're taking these natural fats away from us, I really feel like it affects people's mental health more than we realize. If we have, yes, a health crisis in this country with obesity and diabetes and all those other 
conditions, the like, you know, heart disease and, and blood pressure, the mental health crisis and the confusion about who we are as we're developing our hormones, those things are all affected by the fats that we're consuming and the food that we're consuming as well. And for cholesterol, it's really interesting because they'll say that uh, cholesterol is what the plaque is that forms in the veins when, or arteries, you know, when someone has a heart attack or clogged, clogged um, artery. And that's not the cause of it. There's scarring in that artery. The cholesterol is the spackling your body makes to fix that scarring. And so there can be like an over scarring, a buildup. So the cholesterol isn't the problem. The cholesterol is what your body is using to fix it. So where's the problem before that? But that's not the conversation anyone ever wants to have. That's when you see your family members eyes glaze over and they stop listening to you. For sure. I mean, the statins one is, is it's exactly like you said with the eggs, they have this back and forth. And I think it's a key trick of the big pharma companies is they release a study, then they release another one that goes the other way, then back the other way. And it's just to keep people perpetually confused because they don't want anyone to ever realize that this thing is bad for them. So yep. they, they allow some studies to go one way, then back the other, and it'll go on and on. Statins is one of the biggest, one of the most prescribed drugs in the world. Yeah. And like you said, cholesterol is a key building block of our brain. And if you take away the cholesterol with a drug, is it any wonder we've got such a rise in Alzheimer's and dementia mm -hmm. and all of these other cognitive diseases in elderly? I always ask as well, my grandparents, what they ate growing up. And it was a high fat diet. You know, if they could get their hands on animal fats, it was like fantastic. We really yes. want that. You know, yeah. it's really prized stuff. And butter, you know, milk fat as well, butter and cheese, depending on where you lived, what region you were in, you, there's some type of animal fat. And that's why the work of Dr. Weston A. Price, who's actually a dentist, he did most of his studies, I think, in the 1930s. Um, he went around and studied different tribes and the diets they were eating, and then also studied tribes that were now eating a Western diet. And he found these changes mostly he was really focused on the teeth because he was a dentist but i think that was really telling because what was happening is this generation after the dietary change the the uh, dental arch was narrowing and we suddenly didn't have enough room for all of our teeth in our mouth and people were needing to get wisdom teeth removed that wasn't always the case we used to have wide dental arches and wide nose broad noses so less sinus problems and allergies and stuffiness and um these big, beautiful smiles with straight teeth. And it's, it's really um, fascinating to see what else um, there was in common between these tribes because they were all over the world and not all of them had the same diet. So it wasn't about having a specific health food that would have kept them healthy. It was just about eating whatever was natural around them and in season. And what they all had is in common is that they all ate some type of animal food. Some either that being fish or milk and dairy or, or meat. Um, they were eating some type of animal food and there has never been a vegan society and there is, there's never been generational vegans. So if you just take that in for a second, it doesn't mean there hasn't been vegetarian societies. There has, but they were eating other animal foods. And yeah. that can be really controversial. <laughs> I was just about to say, <laughs> uh, I, I know one listener, uh, Johnny from the Staying Free podcast, that I think actually you'd be a fantastic guest for, for Johnny, uh, but he's a, he's a vegan. Uh, and I used I, to be I a vegan, Lanny. So I was going to say, everyone's <laughs> been a vegan, right? And, I was, yeah, and if point. you care about health and you're looking into this, you definitely have. But it was so funny because when I was a vegan, it was I knew so much less than I knew now. And I'm like, the oriental flavored top ramen is not, it's not a healthy vegan <laughs> option. So I know there's a huge scale of the way you can be vegan and you can be um, much healthier. But I still think that 
those people would benefit from considering at least some type of animal food um, wherever they can fit with their ethics and their and it, what's local to them. What can they get from a natural uh, a farm? If you care about the way animals are treated, which I really do, then you need to get closer to a farmer. It doesn't mean you necessarily have to abstain, but you might want to abstain from the industrial farming, you know. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the conversation that I've had a few times and I try and not have it because it's really I've got no skin in the game on this one. But I always say to people, listen, if you live in a city, I'm not saying this to be mean, but if you live in a city and you're getting your food through the traditional mechanisms where you even if it's vegetables, if that's coming from big ag and it's traveling on trucks, you are killing thousands of animals. Like when my neighbor, when I sit, when I walk across his field, uh, after he's plowed it it's like a it's like an animal holocaust you know yes, like it's, it's just it, the whole field it destroys everything like there's voles there's beds and there's, there's lizards there's too, everything you know? and even manufacturing the things that they're using to do that is harmful for the environment so yeah if you care for the environment then buy local like and if you cannot survive locally without also eating meat then maybe you should reconsider eating meat <laughs> like I don't know, yeah. especially if you're like us and you see what's you know what's happening and what may come like getting comfortable with how to eat nourishing foods and how to prepare meat now is also something knowledge that you could be prepping now instead of waiting until you have to go and you know eat that turtle or whatever you can find <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i also think as well, i mean for me personally like i absolutely detest killing animals i don't like it at all mm-hmm. but you know i understand where we are in history and i understand the luxury of having these ethical views around animals and i don't think it's unethical to eat animals at all Lani. it's just my personal preference if i could i'd say probably not but i also do eat meat and it's not because i've got low discipline it's because i think it's the natural way and the the studies always show that like you mentioned western a prices study uh, they were extremely healthy these inuit communities who were just eating like blubber and mm. seals they're super healthy people you know and, and and that diet is perfect for their location it puts enough fat on them so they've got insulation from the cold it's such a beautiful system we've got like this whole cyclical system that we're a part of And I think whenever we try and add too much ideology or we allow governments to take control of the science, it always wretches us straight out of the cycle. So now all of a sudden we're we're kind of inverting things or trying to force it to bend to our will rather than just being, you know, just being a part of that cycle. And that's why I love the homestead, because it comes from, you know, it comes from my own forest, the food, it comes from out back. Not everything. We're not fully self-sufficient. I mean, that's the goal, but uh, it's a big, big task. You you always have to rely on neighbors or someone, but yeah, get bringing yourself close to doing those tasks and understanding how they come about gives you a greater appreciation for what you're consuming, right? Yeah, it gives you a lot of compassion too. And it also, it helps you to understand just how just how brilliant it is that we made it this fine history. And it certainly wasn't from being uh, too picky around things like you know like yeah. you said about with the with the canning and stuff it's like well yeah i could be super fussy about those things but ultimately i think desperation is uh once that comes in that's probably why people don't care so much over here because we don't, they never had the luxury to buy fancy cans they just said no we need to preserve our food if we don't preserve we're not eating that's it uh, i can't remember who where the quote was from but it, i think it's hunger is the greatest seasoning you know, it's like the, your food tastes the best when you're hungry, when you've worked hard and like the things that you have, you're more grateful for if that's all you have. So even if it's like a improperly uh, water bath canned thing of meat and you're having to kind of cook it to death to feel safe, it's you still have meat to eat. Uh, yeah, it's so important. You mentioned the Inuits, which is I think is a really interesting study because we're told so much that vitamin C is integral to our health. And we all know, you know, the sailors were getting scurvy and they didn't know what it was until they realized they had a lack of vitamin C. 
And so there's two stories here that are actually really interesting. One, the Inuits, they don't get almost any vitamin C at all, barely any, but they're, you actually, your burn rate of vitamin C is so much less when you're eating a completely carnivore diet with the, just the fat and the protein that they were having, that they didn't need the vitamin C. So it's like whenever you work with you naturally with your environment, it provides what you need. In the other instance, when they were on sailboats, the food they were taking was like hardtack, which is just basically like a super cooked down cracker like bread thing that they would rehydrate with water to make some kind of a gruel. And so there's not much nutrient left in that. And your body needs a lot of vitamin C and other other kinds of nutrients to support that digestion. So they were getting scurvy. They were getting sick. The answer to scurvy was not to start trucking in orange juice <laughs> to the area. The answer for scurvy was actually big barrels of sauerkraut, which is so amazing because when you have cabbage, if you make turn it into sauerkraut, then it's preserving the cabbage, but it's also increasing the vitamin C enough so that a couple tablespoons a day is enough vitamin C for a person to survive. So if you need vitamin C through the winter when shit hits the fan, pine needles or sauerkraut, I think are really the way to go. Yeah, it's also the the favorite uh, hangover cure in Poland is to just drink the sauerkraut juice the day after. Oh, they just, I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they just hand it to they, you and say, drink that, you'll be fine. There's a company here that sells those in the local um, food co-op for like, you know, $8 for a shot. They call them gut shots. It's just straight up sauerkraut. Wow. Juice. $8. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I know. But, but we are seeing this as well. We're seeing a huge commercialization of actual things that you could just make yourself at home, you know, old. And I don't think it's going to be as healthy because of all the things they're probably adding to it to get it to market, to sit down the shelf. But I think we're going to leave it there for part one, Lani, because there's so much more I want to ask you, but I want to be respectful of your time too. So before yeah. we go, Lani, can you just tell people where they can find your work, your podcasts, your workshops? Please let everyone know where's best to go. Sure. So for the podcast, that's the Greener Postures podcast. And you can find that anywhere that you listen to your podcast. I'm also with uh, my husband, Chud, on The World As It Is Today, where we talk about raising kids in a crazy world, mostly, and um, the like. And then for my new website, preservingtoday.com is where you can find these recipes and tutorials that I'm putting up, as well as my YouTube channel, Preserving Today, uh, there. And on Instagram, I'm also Preserving Today. I was formerly greener postures. I just made that switch about a week ago. So, um, greenerpostures.com. Also, you can find my workshops. I do live online workshops. Uh, they're about two hours and they have books of information that come with that. Um, you can still purchase the replays on greenerpostures.com. Um, Monica Perez has been to a few of mine. She's making her own sauerkraut and bone broth and stuff like that now too. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Lenny. That was a fantastic part one. Uh, I've tentatively titled part two, uh, and I, I'm springing this one on you. It's, I've tentatively titled it Great Depression 2.0 Survival Guide. So I think that gives you cool. a flavor of the kind of things that I want to ask you about. Basically, I want to try and get to some answers as to how we can start getting prepared for potentially some really hard times ahead and maybe some practical advice. And I think you're the perfect person for that. So thank you so much for joining us once more, Lenny, and I look forward to part two. Thank you. What you are basic. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Hey, 
peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence. Not really peace in our time, peace in all time.